I can author my own story. Everyone has the power to author their own story. And the stories that we create are really instrumental in shaping us as individuals and as professionals. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast, where we talk about reinventing your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today, my guest is going to share her career journey of going from human resources work to management consulting to executive coaching. We'll discuss how you can find your voice in an environment where you're an outlier and identifying the common thread across your professional experiences. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll talk about the importance of owning your own narrative during a big career transition. Hello from Salzburg, Austria. I'm back here to host a personal branding workshop for Red Bull. And speaking of personal branding, on today's episode, we're gonna discuss the idea of controlling your own professional narrative, which is especially important when you're changing career paths because others may initially dismiss you just because you don't fit the usual mold of candidates they're used to seeing. Proactively taking control of your own narrative helps you ensure that your unique value and aspirations come through clearly and convincingly. Today, I'm speaking with Maura Lightfoot, who knows a lot about this topic, both professionally and personally. Consistent throughout Maura's career has been her drive to empower others in their work. From human resources in the Middle East to financial services management consulting in London to nonprofit organizational culture in Washington, D.C., Maura's experience equips her with a unique perspective that's both grounded and global. Now an executive leadership coach, Maura works with clients around the world, including North America, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, and has herself lived and worked in multiple countries. Moira and I first crossed paths several years ago at the Cambridge Judge Business School when she was doing her MBA there, and I was doing some elevator pitch coaching there. She was one of the handful of students who stood out to me at the time because she really put in the work to craft a clear, compelling professional narrative for herself. A few weeks ago, I saw one of her LinkedIn posts about her most recent career move. We reconnected, and now I'm really excited to have her share her story on the show today. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 94. Maura spoke with me from Bethesda, Maryland. Hello, Maura. Welcome to the Career Relaunch podcast. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joseph. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so delighted to reconnect in this way and really looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's get started by, first of all, getting a glimpse into what's happening for you at this particular moment. What are you focused on right now in your career and also your life? I'm currently based in Bethesda, Maryland, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. And it's wonderful because there's it's really rich in culture. It's an incredibly diverse place to live. And so we're really enjoying that. As a result of that and sort of related to that, I've had the benefit of working for an international non-for-profit over the past few years. And most recently, I've actually moved into executive leadership coaching. So I'm now working with leaders on how and where they show up in the workplace, which is very exciting. Okay. I also know that you are a mother of two young boys. How do you go about balancing that with starting a new coaching practice? 
they are a handful <laughs> four and six years old. And we do have help. I, I wouldn't be able to do this without our wonderful Manny, who's been with us for a few years. And one of the benefits of coaching for me and the reason I made the transition is to actually spend more time with them, you know, being able to spend time with them in the afternoons and, you know, have special time together has actually made a, a big difference even just the last few months in our relationship, which has been great. Yeah, I'm also, as you know, a career consultant. And I know that since moving into working for myself, it has definitely been helpful as a parent. Like I wouldn't have it any other way. And it definitely offers you some flexibility that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were in a traditional full-time corporate role, as I know you and I have both been in the past. Yeah, you haven't always been a executive coach. And I do want to come back to that toward the end to explore your journey into coaching. But could we just go back and talk a little bit about some of the major transitions that you've had in your life? And we're going to cover some major geographical transitions, some functional and role changes that you've experienced. But I'd love to just go back in time and talk about really the beginning part of your career and as I understand it, you did your undergraduate studies at the University of Pennsylvania. What were you studying at the time and what were your initial career plans? So I was at Penn, I was an anthropology major, African studies minor, and I pursued that because I really loved people. <laughs> I mean, to put it very simply, I loved connecting with people and understanding more about their systems and the dynamics in between them, intra and inter. Uh, system connections and dynamics. And so I was able to pursue that in my studies. I did know at the time that I didn't want to be an anthropologist, sort of an academic professionally. So that opened the door to well, what's next. I had this incredible study abroad experience as part of my African studies minor, where I was able to spend almost four months in South Africa in an immersion program. And we had four homestays. We learned Tulsa through an intensive language study. And I was found myself in environments that were completely foreign to me and absolutely loved it. So I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do after undergrad, but I knew I wanted to sort of replicate that experience in some way. Now, you posted on LinkedIn last month, which reminded me of you and the work that you're doing, that you said that one of your top priorities when you were graduating from Penn was to get a job overseas. Why was that so important to you? It really all started with that experience studying abroad. And I can't sort of thank the people that were involved in that enough. But I grew up in South Jersey. I went to school 20 minutes from home and, um, you know, very supportive family and really wonderful environments. And I wanted to experience a diverse setting and an environment that was different from that in which I grew up. And so I was able to do that in my undergrad studies, wanted to do that again when I graduated. And so I applied for programs and jobs that were in really kind of remote places, places you wouldn't think of necessarily. Could you give a sampling into a few of the places you were thinking about going to? Mexico was probably the closest place. Um, I was looking at Peru. I was looking at Vietnam. My two job offers, actually, I, I only had two in the end, and they came down to teaching in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and becoming an HR recruiter in Doha, Qatar. And so that's how I ended up in Doha. <laughs> how did you make the decision to go to Qatar over Mongolia? What was the main motivation there? If you can think back that far, I know this was a while back. For me, it really came down to the job description itself. 
it really came down to the role that I was doing. And I was looking not just for what that was going to be at the, in the moment, but something that would actually put me in a position that I could I could sort of leverage that into something, you know, at a later time that was more a longer trajectory that I was interested in pursuing professionally. So it was teaching English in Ulan Bantar. Very exciting, huge geographic area. I mean, there's so much to do in Mongolia. Doha, Qatar itself, I should say, is much smaller. I was moving at the time into an HR role, which I think from for myself and my interests gave me kind of a bigger platform, you know, that I could then use to springboard into something else in the future. Now, I've never been to Qatar myself, Mora, and I know it's been in the news a lot lately with the World Cup, and I have hosted a webinar for some execs out there, but I really don't know what life is like there on the ground. Could you give me a glimpse into what daily life was like for you there as someone in her early 20s who had just moved there from the United States? Well, the country itself is only about two or three percent Qatari. It's 98, not sure exactly the latest numbers, but it's 98 to 97 percent at the time, at least when I was there, foreign nationals. There are people from all over the world that go to Doha to work. I was moving into a position working for a construction management firm. And so we had staff from all over the Middle East, from Australia, from Malaysia, from Canada, from the United States, from the UK, from Ireland, I mean, all over the world. For In terms of the people that were actually based in the office, um, which I was, um, that was a smaller percentage of staff because most of our employees were actually out on construction sites and project sites. Um, so for those who were in the office every day, I was myself the youngest by at least 10 years. I was the only woman who wasn't a secretary in a secretarial position. I was the only white person. I was the only native English speaker. And I was the newest person to arrive to the office. Everyone else had been there for at least you know a few months. It was an incredibly intense, intimidating environment. The people there were very kind, very nice for the most part. But it was a lot. It was a huge transition. And on a personal level, I didn't actually know anyone when I moved to Doha. Um, I'd gotten the job in the U.S., and was on a plane within two weeks of my job interview. I, through a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing, had one tenuous connection over Facebook that ended up kind of connecting me into a whole social network that you know I became friends with. But when I first landed and for a few weeks, I, I was completely on my own. And so it was very intense. We are actually coincidentally, we didn't plan it this way, but we're recording this on International Women's Day. That's true. And you mentioned that you were the only female in the office who was in a non-secretarial role, one of the youngest, clearly someone who was an outlier and a minority in so many ways, age, race. What was that like for you in the office on a day-to-day -day basis? Did you think about it? Did it manifest in any way? Did it affect you? And if so, how? It did certainly manifest. There were also cultural differences which I came across, I mean, continuously throughout my time there. And so I think the biggest thing that I had to figure out in that setting was how do I find my voice? I would say find my feet, but it really became how do I find my voice? As a woman who came from a family and a culture of strong women, right, that supports women, wants women to flourish and do well. And so not everyone that I was with in that environment shared that sentiment. 
Um, so I myself experienced harassment and, you know, inappropriate comments and and managers who didn't want to support women or kind of thought women had a place that was different than the office and told me as much, told me that I would have a ceiling that was very low because I would have to have children someday and that wasn't very far off. So, so not only did I have to find my voice and stand up for myself, I also found that as I did that, other women, both in the office and actually out on the project sites, came to me for support in dealing with kind of situations that they were facing themselves. And so I became an advocate for them as well, to the extent where, and I ended up moving to the Dubai office, um, I actually ended up putting together an anti-harassment training, which I delivered across the region to other regional offices across the UAE, Qatar, and also Bahrain. So that became a really key part of the work that I created for myself in that role and, you know, what I wanted to kind of leave behind. Very interesting. Like Sometimes I, I think about this, more because this is 2023 and you kind of, I guess, hope that we've made some progress in terms of gender equality and uh, women being able to have the same opportunities in the workplace. And at the same time, again, I'm making some broad generalizations here, but I'm assuming that they're in, in a more patriarchal environment that no matter what you do, it's kind of hard to get ahead. Would you say that's a fair characterization or not? I don't disagree. I would certainly say that women are seen very differently in patriarchal societies through the lens of those who hold on to that view, right? Because it's not just a society as a whole. We all know people who see life in that through that lens. And women are seen differently, you know, and it manifests and kind of shows up in the way that they're spoken to and the expectations that are put on them. And so opportunities are not seen to be connected to women in the same way as they are with men. And it was a very bizarre experience to have that in 2008 to 2010, not that long ago. And I found myself at the age of 22, you know, educating middle-aged men as to, you know, the art of what's possible <laughs> for women, because I grew up with very strong female role models, including my mother who worked and raised four children and these men telling me, well, enjoy it while it lasts because eventually in, you know, not very, you know, in a not too distant future, you're going to have to get married and have kids. And then your career will be over was not my story. And I found it really important that they knew that and that they understood that that's expectations for women don't have to be different than they do for men. Certainly. I actually just got back from Pakistan just last week, actually, Maura, I was out there for a few days hosting some workshops and I did have a conversation with a woman out there who was talking to me about the gender dynamics there. And again, broadly generalizing a slightly more patriarchal society, just the challenges that still exist right now and how it's really, it's hard to navigate it. And as, as someone myself who is American, when I go into a different culture, sometimes I struggle with how much to voice my views on how things could be versus just the way that it's been accepted in whatever society I'm in. And I, I really struggle with that sometimes. How did you manage that? Like balancing your opinions versus the societal norms in a very different part of the world? I think what I did was not try to project. The big exception being, you know, a straight up harassment case, because I did deal with those, right? That's, of course, inappropriate 
My opinion is that that's inappropriate in any culture and regardless of gender. But with that being the exception, I mean, I, I tried to explain to people what my views were for myself rather than say, hey, you should, you know, your expectations for yourself as a woman in this culture are lower than they should be, right? Or your expectations for your wife <laughs> are lower than they should be, right? So it, it wasn't a judgment about others. It was just to say, look, this is what I expect for myself. And I know I can do it because I've seen other people do it, right? So trying to kind of raise that ceiling through the stories about myself and my own kind of narrative rather than judging others. Well, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit, and I want to talk about your transition. I know this is just one of the many that we're going to cover today. So you're working in this firm in Qatar and you're working in HR. What triggered you to move to London after that? Can you remember what your motivation was in making that move? I can. Yeah. And I'm married to him now. Okay. <laughs> that is often the reason why people make international yeah. moves. <laughs> that, that was very professional and sort of personal driven by me. I ended up, as I said, I didn't know anyone when I got there. I ended up meeting this great group of people, one of whom I started dating. And he actually got into a master's program in London and said, do you want to come with me? And I said, sure, I'll go. I speak English, <laughs> which was a big mistake because the English language in the UK is very different from American English. I managed to get a visa for myself, a work visa, while I was still in, in Dubai. And then I moved from there to the UK with my work visa, but with no job. I see. This was 2010. Is that yes. right? But I guess the visa restrictions were not quite as well restrictive at the time. When you're applying for a job in another country, and I think this is true in most countries, you either need your own visa um, which has a, a work status, or you need to be sponsored by an organization. You know, being able to get that UK work visa in Dubai meant that I was applying for jobs in London with the visa. So I didn't need the company sponsorship, which just helped, to be honest. And can you remember how it felt when you landed in London back in a predominantly English speaking country that? is, I guess, at least for all intents and purposes, as different as it can get from a place like Dubai or Qatar or Doha. I still say this. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. I thought moving to London would be easy for all the reasons you know that you would assume. It's incredibly bureaucratic. <laughs> I wasn't at the time a British national. You know, we We luckily had a family connection and so we're able to kind of get an address, but even just getting a cell phone, which you need to apply for jobs because they need to be able to call you, was really actually very challenging. Yeah, it is tricky. Yeah. As much as there wasn't a language barrier, it was much more bureaucratic, which I found challenging. So you do land in London. You do finally manage to get a, a mobile phone and a bank account and those yeah. kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. You need to get your life started exactly. here. You move to ERM, so Environmental Resources management and are still working in HR. Could you explain what your trajectory was there and then ultimately what triggered you to then decide to pursue your MBA? So the challenge in working in HR and then moving to a different country is that there's an expectation when you're working with personnel that you actually understand employment law, which I didn't and still really don't <laughs> in the UK. 
Um, however, ERM had this great position open, which was in the international HR team. So in their global HR team, where I was able to work on more strategy related projects. And I fell into learning and development, which I really loved, always on a global scale. Um, so supporting the staff around the world. And so that worked out really well that I was still applying, you know, my HR skill set and the work that I'd done previously, but on a global scale. So, you know, I was able to sort of overcome the lack of local employment law issue in that way. And then as I kind of really got into that work more, I identified that my area of interest was is was the overlap between business and culture. Obviously, I had the degree in culture anthropology. I've lived and worked in, I think at the time it was five, now it's almost 10 countries. I had done the HR work, kind of working with people across different cultures. And on the business side, I'd worked for you know, these international organizations, but I felt that I wanted to really bolster my business acumen to more, you know, to really round out that side of things. And so that's where the MBA came in to give me kind of a stronger business skill set. And so that business knowledge, if you will. And this was an MBA at the Cambridge Judge Business School, which is where you and I first crossed paths. Yeah. Yeah. Must have been early 2015 or something like that. So about, I guess, eight years ago. And during that time, you made another shift, and this is oftentimes the motivation in, in pursuing an MBA is to make a bit of a pivot. Now, in this case, you made a pivot into the management consulting world, which is not an easy pivot to make. It's a very esteemed sector. Can you explain how you managed to go from working in HR and learning and development and then landing a pretty high profile management consulting role at Deutsche Bank in financial services? I really wanted to round out my professional experience and expertise. And so I did use the MBA as a pivot opportunity, exactly as you've said, and was able to find through one of the recruitment events that, you know, business schools often host, a management consulting group that was actually internal to the organization. So Deutsche Bank has an internal management consulting arm, which is a very German model. There are a number of companies that do this. And they have a slightly different mindset and sort of approach, I think, to the more externally facing management consultants, uh, consultancies. And so I ended up connecting in with this group that was really open to people of diverse backgrounds and experiences and saw the value in getting people's kind of perspectives that weren't strictly from financial services. And I think that's key to any transition is kind of being able to find people that are attracted to diversity and attracted to, you know, maybe a different skill set and see the benefit of that in the work that they're doing. And so GMC Group Management Consulting did that. And I found a home there and a team that was, um, you know, really wonderful. And I had an incredible experience there. How would you describe the major differences between working and consulting versus your prior roles? Working in consulting was a painfully steep learning curve, I have to say. I moved from talking with people around the world and developing training that I delivered over webinars to staff across different countries to sitting in an office for 10 hours a day with no windows in front of a laptop, crunching client data (laughs) using, I mean... Excel skills that were way beyond my capabilities at the time and was completely thrown in the deep end. Very high pressure, very high profile, hyper intense, and, you know, just completely different with 
a life that revolved around Excel and PowerPoint <laughs> um, more than kind of the people connection, which I was so used to in the past. You know, part of my job in the Gulf was driving around to the different construction sites or even, you know, flying out to different offices and different countries and meeting with people and hearing about their issues. And, you know, my my first 10 months at Deutsche Bank, I was sitting, as I said, in a windowless room in front of Excel with four other consultants. And that's kind of where we were, which is a very, you know, when you think of consulting, that's often what you think of. And not all of my projects were like that, but it was a complete 180. (laughs) So I'm going to read between the lines here a little bit and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you were perhaps more in your natural element in the HR world, perhaps because it was your first set of roles and perhaps because you'd always had an interest in the human side of things. And then you go into this role, which is very different, as you mentioned, focused around PowerPoint and Excel. How do you reconcile this situation where sometimes you're in a role where clearly you're learning a lot, but maybe you don't feel like it is quite you? How did you think about how long to continue doing that? And because sometimes what happens is people go into these roles and they they do it because they want to learn something or they want to quote unquote do their time, um, especially in consulting. How did you think about how long to stay in that world? Or was that even part of your thought process at the time? It absolutely was. Part of my frustration with HR was, you know, people see it as really soft, right? Or sort of out of touch with, you know, the operations or the business side of things, which is why I really wanted to kind of connect in that business and culture, you know, those two pieces together. And therefore I needed more of that business side. And I sort of jumped in the deep end in that sense and kind of went to a place that was much, much more focused on the business than the people, at least in so many ways. And I anticipated that. And so I went into it thinking this is not forever. And on those really long, really painful days, I thought this isn't forever, right? And I sort of thought, I don't know, three years seems to be this kind of magic number that I hold in my head when I make transitions. You know, if I could do this for three years, that's fine. And sometimes it's two and sometimes it's five. (laughs) But I sort of hold three years as some type of number for me, which feels manageable and comfortable because it's a commitment, but it's not a life sentence. And so I think whatever that number is for others, even if, again, it doesn't work out that way, right? But just to kind of go into something thinking, okay, well, what am I comfortable with? What can I commit to um, so that I'm fully present to what I'm doing and able to really kind of make the most of this time, but I'm not also overwhelmed by, oh my gosh, I'm stuck here. That's how I looked at it. And I ended up actually staying at Georgia Bank for almost five years. So that did work out quite well for me. You would eventually move back to the U.S., which is where you're now based. How did you come to that decision to move back to the U.S. after going on this incredible journey through the Gulf region and then to Europe? What triggered you to make that move? While I was at Deutsche Bank, actually, we'd had two children or two boys and had outgrown our flat in London and needed to make a decision of, you know, okay, we need to move out. Do we move out to a bigger place in the UK or do we move to the US? For for family reasons, for personal reasons, we decided to move to the US. And I struggle sometimes to say, is it back to the US (laughs) or just to the US? Because our professional lives, I mean, my entire professional life at that point had been overseas. 
So we made the decision to come back here, as I said, just outside of Washington, D.C., which is a very international place, which is, you know, gives me a lot of solace and joy. And, you know, we have neighbors and friends from all over the world and also have a lot of global experience, which kind of eased that transition a bit. I've always wondered about what it's like to go. I know you said you'd never worked in the U.S., so it was moving to the U.S. At the same time, you'd spent your whole childhood and college years in the United States. What's it been like for you to, because this was in 2020, right? So you're coming up to, I guess, three years back in the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah, we moved in late 2019. It was actually six months before COVID lockdown, which is a weird time to transition to a new place. I'll bet. I found that people assumed that we were from here. I mean, we are from here. Like I'm from, you know, New Jersey. But, you know, people ask you, where are you from? And you say New Jersey and they say, okay. And then they kind of fill in the blanks and assume that that's been your life. And they don't understand. They don't know that actually I identify as from New Jersey and so much more than that. It was really confusing coming back here and talking with my sister about Roth IRAs and things like that, that my younger sister had more experience with this than I did you know, getting really frustrated with utilities and things. And my neighbor saying, well, what do you mean you don't understand how it works here? <laughs> you know, and there being sort of assumptions that because I sound like I do and I look like I do, that I understood how things work here and I had that lived experience, but actually I didn't necessarily have that lived experience of working professionally in the United States. So that's been a very odd transition. And it's very easy for us to compare life here to life elsewhere, primarily in the UK. The DC area is a great place to be and, and we're enjoying that as well. So it's, and it's wonderful to be closer to family. That's been really wonderful. So you go back to the United States and then you shift into what I'm going to describe. I'm going to put a label on this, but into more of the mission driven world. And Oftentimes when I speak with people who have spent time working in the for-profit corporate world, as you had up until this point, I know that people can sometimes be drawn to more mission-driven organizations. I'm curious what your motivation was in shifting into a more mission-driven world, and uh, then we can talk a little bit about the realities of that world. While I was at Deutsche Bank, there were a number of corruptions and scandals that were uncovered in the press. and. As I said, the management consulting group that I was part of was wonderful. The organization as a whole was not a place that I was always proud to say I worked, <laughs> you know, when people asked. And so that's when I was then leaving. I wanted to find a place and land somewhere where I was really proud to say that I worked there. And the D.C. area has a lot of international organizations, international not-for-profits. And so I had the benefit of looking around and saying, okay, well, you know, what are the organizations that... I would be really proud to work for. And so, as you say, that mission-driven component was very much important to me and a key part of what I was looking for in that next step. And what were your perceptions of working in the more mission-driven world? And then what was the reality that you experienced? I thought it would be everyone sort of gung-ho, supporting a cause that we all believed in and I ended up at the International Baccalaureate. So, you know, the global component of my work up to that point was still part of the work that I was doing as the head of global employee experience. And I loved the work and it very much was gung-ho. We're all supporting this cause. 
creating education to make a more peaceful world. And I mean, what a mission. And the people there truly are passionate about it. And so that was a wonderful place to be. There's a flip side to it. People that are so passionate and so mission-driven expect a lot of themselves. And so one thing that I learned is that there's actually a lot of burnout that happens in mission-driven organizations. Not that there isn't elsewhere, but certainly more than I expected. You know, I thought, well, you know, I'll be leaving behind these crazy hours at Deutsche Bank. And that wasn't the case. Um, you know, I found in the mission-driven non-for-profit world, people are very much working their tails off and really some people are really burning out in part because they are so passionate. <laughs> I was not expecting that. The last thing I was hoping to discuss with you before we wrap up by talking about your recent shift into the corporate world are some of the lessons you've learned along the way of your interesting career journey. And something you said in your LinkedIn post was that our greatest learning often happens outside our comfort zone, where we're forced to grapple with the uncomfortable, the challenging, and the uncertain. What's something that you learned by working in those environments where you were a complete outlier? I would say the key thing is being really aware of yourself, who you are, what you need, and being able to advocate for yourself is critical. And so that's where I think I've been able to harness kind of this, this, I became, I think, really grounded in who I was out of necessity. <laughs> and so that's made a huge difference then in being able to kind of make other pivots because I know where I'm centered from, right? I know where I'm sort of moving from at my core. Speaking of which, what is something that you wished you had known about making major career changes and making major geographical moves that you now know? I wish I had known that I would be able to tell a convincing story, that people would actually be attracted to that. So often, I was told that there should be some kind of worry or concern, you know, a fear of making a change or, you know, reasons, you know, focus on the reasons to not do it. And actually what I found was I was always able to find opportunities where that was an advantage. And so I wish that I had known that that was going to be the case, right? To not kind of move from a place of worry, but actually to move from a place of opportunity. I want to wrap up with what you're doing now. I know that you've recently made the move into the coaching world. Can you explain what that has been like for you to move from working as a full-time employee to starting your own coaching practice? For myself to be able to explain that and for other people to kind of follow <laughs> those shifts is to have sort of a common thread throughout that. And so for me, the connection throughout all the changes I've made is that I am motivated by the ability to empower others in their work. That's what gets me out of bed. And so what I've done most recently is I've moved from empowering others in their work from a kind of organizational level, you know, working in employee experience at a global organization to empowering others in their work on a one-to-one -one level as an executive leadership coach. 
And what I'm finding is that, you know, the frustrations that I've had with organizations in the past, that change is too slow. Uh, you know, it takes too much time for organizations to really make meaningful transitions, et cetera. That is all wiped away when you're working one-to-one with individuals. And there's change happening, you know, within 45 minutes, you know, within a single call, let alone over six months or so. And so it's been incredibly exciting, energizing, gratifying, humbling to be witness to that change and to be part of people's journeys as they're figuring out, you know, where they want to show up and how they want to show up and to support them as they grow and transform. What have you found challenging about this specific transition? It can be a bit lonely. I'm a very collaborative person. I love working with teams and being a a one-to-one exec leadership coach is a bit lonely. So I'm starting to expand that and work with teams and do more consulting work, which is great. That's been kind of the biggest challenge so far. When we were prepping for this call, I also remember you mentioning something about this concept of a metamorphosis related to a caterpillar going to a butterfly. And you mentioned this concept of bug soup. (laughs) Could you just remind me what's that all about and how has that related to your own journey into coaching? I started this transition back in August, September last year, which is around the same time in the Northeast of the United States when monarch butterfly caterpillars go into their chrysalis. And we happened to have a caterpillar and we're doing this with my kids as an activity. So we're doing a lot of research into what's happening so we can explain to them. And I learned at that time that actually when a chrysalis is formed, if you were to open it up, prematurely, you know, in the middle of the metamorphosis, it's actually a green goo that you'd find inside. And what happens is the caterpillar breaks down all of its, um, okay, I'm not a scientist. That's my disclaimer, (laughs) but it breaks down kind of all of its softer parts into this bug soup. And then it reconstructs into the butterfly. And then when it's ready, then it opens and, you know, we know what happens after that. And so I was really struck as I was going through this process of establishing my own coaching practice by, you know, also learning about this concept of bug soup. And I thought, well, that's what's happening to me. I'm in the middle of this bug soup where I sort of feel like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm stepping out on my own and I'm moving from the comfort and security of a paycheck and an organization and a team to being completely on my own and building a business. And I'm bug soup. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think the lesson there for me is that you know, kind of acknowledging that it was, as I had a an MBA professor say, the messy middle, that that's okay. That's part of the process. And sort of trusting that I'll come out on the other side, you know, in some form or another, hopefully a good one that can fly. But yeah, that was actually really comforting for me at the time to kind of know that, you know, even animals go through or bugs go through this. And I wasn't so different in that sense. <laughs> Speaking of this metamorphosis, final question for you, Maura, what's something you've learned about yourself as you've made this shift from the corporate world into starting your own independent executive coaching practice? A key lesson for me has been and continues to be that I can and do every day author my own story. And it's something that, you know, I talk with my coaching clients about and you know, in terms of what's your story and the power of stories. So often, you know, we tell ourselves certain things, you know, we tell ourselves stories, there's a narrative in our heads. And that is so powerful in terms of shaping who we are and how we show up. 
and we're talking about career transitions, everyone has the power to author their own story. So I talked to my coaching clients about this, the power of stories that we tell ourselves, the narratives in our heads, we all have it. And the stories that we create, that we narrate, both looking back in terms of what we want to glean from where we've come from, and also looking forward in terms of where we want to go and how we're going to get there, are really instrumental in shaping us as personal, you know, as individuals and as professionals. And I think there are kind of three key things in terms of making those transitions successful. The self-awareness and reflection to actually consider what are your skills? What are the gaps? What do you desire? Right. And what's the rationale for that? There's a need to understand what others need, whether it's an individual or a system, right? How can you fit into their needs? How can you kind of bring, as I sort of mentioned as an example, the human side to the consulting work? Right. And how is that going to benefit that organization as an example? And then the third is to be able to tell a convincing and authentic story. And if you can do those three things, that's it. That's the magic. And everyone can do that. I truly believe it. Everyone has the ability to do this. Well, if people are interested in learning more about what you do or if they need some help with figuring out the human side of their own career story and crafting their own narrative. Where can people go to learn more about you or the coaching work that you do? On LinkedIn, I'm Maura Connell Lightfoot, and my organization is MCL Coaching and Consulting. Anyone can find me on LinkedIn or at mclcoaching.org. Thank you so much, Maura, for reconnecting. It's nice to speak with you again after all these years and telling us more about your life in the Gulf, your various intercontinental moves, how you've overcome the challenges along the way, and also some of your own reflections as you have continued to evolve your own career. So best of luck with your executive coaching endeavors, authoring this chapter of your own career story, and also empowering others to do the same in their professional lives. Thanks for coming onto the show. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed hearing Mora's perspectives on what it's like to be an outlier in your workplace, how long to remain in a job that doesn't feel like a good fit, and why it's so important to advocate for yourself. Now it's time to wrap up with today's Mental Fuel, where I'm going to talk about finding the common thread across all the work you do. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to thank WISE for supporting this episode of the Career Relaunch Podcast. WISE is the world's most international bank account. It lets you hold and convert multiple currencies all in one place, offering a smarter, easier way to move money internationally without the typical bank fees or foreign exchange commissions. I've used it for years myself to handle many of my own international transactions. Try WISE for free at careerrelaunch.net slash WISE. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's Mental Fuel, I want to pick up on something Moira mentioned about authoring your own story, about the importance of finding the common thread across the various aspects of your work and life by looking inward at your own skills and aspirations, looking outward at what others need then communicating both in a convincing way. 
And this got me thinking about my own struggles to connect the dots for both myself and others during my professional pivots and also those times in my career, like now when I've done a lot of seemingly unrelated things. I remember being in business school many years ago myself as someone coming out of a health policy consulting firm at the time wanting to get into branding. Surrounded by other classmates who'd already had years of marketing experience and trying to convince these consumer packaged goods hiring managers to consider me. Or later coming to the UK, trying to persuade companies here that I could effectively market products for them in the UK, even though I'd always worked in the US. Or even now, as someone who's a speaker, career consultant, writer, podcast host, and business owner, what to even call myself when someone asks me what I do. In each of these cases, I felt like the person who was actually the most confused, critical, and even defensive about my own career history was me. At times, I've felt like my past experiences were liabilities. I've felt tempted to almost explain away those experiences that just seemed unrelated, or I felt like my objective in an interview was to just convince someone else to hire me in spite of my former roles that seemed irrelevant to my target role. If you're someone like me who's followed an unconventional career path, or if you're someone who has more of a portfolio career where you've got a lot of disparate professional interests you're pursuing, Make no mistake that connecting the dots is gonna be harder than if you simply followed a linear, more conventional career path. Creating a clear narrative can actually become even harder as you accumulate more experiences because inevitably you might meander a bit along the way. You might have a job that's an outlier role that doesn't really relate to your other jobs. Or you might have a job that abruptly ended either because you decided it wasn't a good fit or because you were swept up in some broader cost-cutting reorganization. Over time, what I've come to realize is that you can't change your professional history. You can't just rewrite what you've done. So you basically have two options. You can either try to explain away your past experiences or you can lean into them, embrace them and create a narrative around why someone would want to consider you not in spite of, but because of your unconventional background. Now, obviously, as Moira mentioned, it's important that the organization or target client is sympathetic to the journey of a career changer or someone that has a more diverse, non-traditional background. But assuming that's a possibility, the onus is then on you to look back on your career history decide which experiences you want to selectively highlight to create the narrative you want, then ideally identify some sort of a unifying common thread across all those experiences to bring them together. In my former branding days, we referred to this concept as a mega brand or umbrella brand that spans across all these seemingly disparate sub-brands a company may have. For example, if you look at the company Inditex, which you may have never heard of necessarily, it has very well-known brands like Zara, Pull and Bear, Bershka, and Massimo Dutti. But the company describes one unified purpose around serving the lifestyle needs of global modern consumers. Or if you take another example and look at a company like Tapestry that owns Coach, Kate Spade, and Stuart Weitzman, 
they describe their mission around stretching what's possible. So these mission statements help to unify a company around a common vision, but that also helps others make sense of what the company is all about. So bringing this back to one's own work, when it comes to mission, Maura mentioned she's motivated by the ability to empower others in their work, both organizations and individuals. For me, I'm focused on helping to hopefully inspire people to pursue more meaningful work. How would you describe the collective focus or mission of your own professional journey? What would be the single headline you would use to describe the entire range of your own work experiences? While it may not be easy to articulate, making the effort to clarify your mission, to control your narrative, is not only helpful but necessary when going through a career transition so you can feel more confident in your own story then clearly and convincingly sell that story to others. This takes me to a quote from Harley Davidson. When writing the story of your life, don't let anyone else hold the pen. So my challenge to you is to take some time to identify the common thread across all the work you currently do and have done in the past. What's been your common motivation across your roles? What's been the singular purpose that gets you out of bed each day? Try and capture it in words and see how it sits with you. Then share that statement with others to see how it lands with them. Making an effort to articulate this can hopefully provide you with some clarity and direction when exploring new opportunities and communicating what you bring to the table in those very situations. If you have a story of career change in your own life you would like to share, or if you've got a question about career change you want me to address on the show, I'd love for you to leave me a voicemail with your thoughts at careerrelaunch.net slash 94, where you can also find a summary of my discussion with Maura and learn more about her work as an executive coach. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash 94. Thanks so much for being part of the Career Relaunch community. And a special thanks again to Maura Lightfoot for sharing her story with us today from Bethesda. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Today's music was curated by Jonathan Rinaldi Pohl, and the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll talk to you next time.